The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fittendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Kate Spider. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my boat. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you on board the bus for another show. Special hello to all our Patreon supporters. You guys, no doubt, are the fuel that keep the bus moving in a northerly direction. Thank you so much. Just this week, Alison came on board the bus, took a seat towards the back, which is all well, a cool kids sit after all. Uh, We have no advertisers, sadly, or sponsors, and it's the Patreon supporters like you, Alison, and the guys who manage to keep the fuel levels high in more ways than one, and I truly, for one, am very humbled and very appreciative of your support. If you want to show some Patreon love to us here in the studio, head to patreon.com, search the Mojo Radio Show. It actually is all pretty easy. And for the price of a cup of coffee or a doseki, uh, you'll be keeping fuel in the tank. Speaking of support, uh, a man who needs plenty of it, Robbo, welcome to this week's show. Yeah, thanks, mate. Feeling a bit devoed this week. Why? Well, as you know, I'm a bit of a Billy Connolly fanboy, have been since my early teens when I discovered his work, and that respect was actually deepened back in the mid-90s when I met him. Um, But it seems he's calling time on his stand-up career because of the Parkinson's disease that he's doing battle with. Kind of made me a bit sad over the weekend, but it was also a little weird because while I'm a huge fan, I was initially disappointed but, th- but then I sort of, I read what he said about it and I was really interested in what he said. He said, I'm finished with stand-up. It was lovely and it was lovely being good at it. It was the first thing I was ever good at and I'm delightful and grateful to it. I guess in his usual sort of nonchalant way, acknowledging that, you know, these skills had got him where they'd got him. Mm. But then he also said, I'm always being asked to go to Parkinson things these days and spend time with Parkinson's people, having lunch or something like that, and I don't approve of it. I don't think you should let Parkinson's define you and all your pals be Parkinson's people. I don't think it's particularly good for you, so I don't do it. And I kind of thought that was interesting because I, it made me wonder whether this persona that Billy becomes when he walks on stage, as I've heard him talk about before, whether the strength that that persona gives him to go on stage and stand in front of thousands of people and, you know, comedy is really putting yourself on the line, whether this, that strength that he draws from that persona is the same persona that draws him the strength to sort of not ignore that he's got Parkinson's, but to sort of say, I'm, I'm not going to be defined by this disease. And I just thought it was nice. 
Well, it's a version of it. It may not be an alter ego, but it could be an identity. So he doesn't want to identify as a Parkinson's person, in which case he doesn't want to hang with other Parkinson people, I suspect. And I'm sure he'll do things to help the cause, but it is in in his soul he's not identifying as perhaps one of them. Yeah. It's sad though, isn't it? I mean, he's such a clever guy. I, I, he's one of the, the people that I will always remember meeting and spending time with in my career in radio. And, um, and that was a long time ago and it, it's, I don't know, it hasn't inspired me as such in my career, but I guess I love the way he approaches life, always have both on stage and off. So, yeah, a bit of a sad day for me. Anyway. There's a guy came up to me in the street. I hope I can get away with this. It's a beauty. <laughs> And he, he said, hey, Biggin. You know, in Scotland, they call me Biggin. And I'm not very big, but everybody else off a wee, you know. But he, he said, did you hear about the one, the guy had done his wife in and that? And I said, no. He said, this guy was going out to meet his friend in the pub. And he went down. He said, oh, hello, how's it going? He said, fine, fine. He said, how's the wife? He said, oh, she's dead. I said, what? He says, dead. Look at the game. Dead. I murdered her. Forget it. She kidding me on. I said, no, no, it's morning. He said, look, I'm not talking to you if you keep on talking like that. He said, well, please yourself. I'll show you if you want. He said, no, show me. So are we up to his tenement building through the close? That's the entrance to the tenement. (laughs) (laughs) Into the back green, into the wash house, and sure enough, there's a big mound of earth. There's a bum sticking out of it. He says, is that her? He says, aye. He says, where'd you leave a bum sticking up for? He says, I need somewhere to park my bike. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. A bit of a timely one this week with everyone panicking and the coronavirus doing the rounds. Uh, I thought this was kind of timely. The human body, we all know, is partly made up of bacteria, but I never really knew how much until I read this study. According to a study done in 2011, there's up to five kilos of bacteria in our body. According to Professor Lita Proctor, the program coordinator of the National Institute of Health's Human Microbiome Project, the bacteria cells in our body outnumber human cells 10 to 1, but because they're much smaller than human cells, they account for only 1% to 2% of our body weight. And in another more important study, I can't believe someone got funding for this, at the North Carolina State University, the Belly Button Biodiversity Study <laughs> found about 1,400 different strains of bacteria living in the navels of 95 participants. Of these, 662 strains were previously unrecognised. So there you go. Whatever you do, next time you're at the beach, don't go picking the potato chip crumbs out of your navel. Or, or is that just me? Well, the thing is, we could have saved them a whole lot of money because in the studio on any given day, you and AP are always staring at your navel. <laughs> so they, they, we could have done the stu- we could have done the study right here, published yeah. the Mojo Radio Show, banked all that money, put it onto Patreon, done, sorted. Yeah, I think. But does does red wine in your navel kill the bacteria? That might be AP's problem. The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week is Travis Mills. On April ten. Only a few years ago, 2012, United States Army Staff Sergeant Travis Mills of the 82nd Airborne 
was critically injured on his third tour of duty in Afghanistan by an IED, which is an improvised explosive device. And he was on patrol. And when he stepped on that improvised explosive device, he lost portions of both legs and both arms. And Travis is one of only five quadruple amputees from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan to survive. And what's really cool, his website on the front simply says, never quit, never give up. Travis Mills is quite often referred to as a recalibrated warrior. And in my mind, uh, enough said. So, Strap yourself in, folks, because this is going to be one hell of a ride. Travis Mills, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And good morning, you bunch of winners. Oh. Do you know, we have never had anybody come out of the gates the way you have this morning, mate. You are just <laughs> charging. Well, you have to. I mean, you got to be a hard charger or else you, you fall behind. And let me tell you something about races. I don't lose. All right. I'm a champion and I'm a winner. My mom thinks I'm very awesome, and that builds my confidence to be able to be a hard charger every day. Travis, when you when you meet somebody and they ask you what you do, today, how do you like to reply? Well, I was just on my way to Canada, and the lady uh, asked me what I do for a living, the Border Patrol agent, who did not smile, was not very cordial, and I told her I'm a motivational speaker, um, and I'm an entrepreneur, as well as, you know, I'm a dad. And she didn't like my jokes at all, to be honest. She did not treat me like you're treating me. You know, it's what's really interesting is you you have faced more than most people would face in a lifetime, yet you come out of the gates charged up. Take us back to 2012 to set the scene for us today, Travis. 2012, you're out on patrol with your teammates. You've got 120 pounds on your back in a rucksack. You stop for a second put your bag on the ground, and life changes. Take us to that very day. Well, yeah. So, I mean, we had a pretty normal normal day. We had a phone call come in that they needed help in the village, so we said, yeah, no problem. Um, we went out like normal. We used to sleep the ground with a minesweeper, which was like a metal detector. And when they were sleeping the ground, the guy in front of me, the minesweeper, he said it was all clear, and he thought it was. And, you know, unfortunately, when I got to um, take my backpack off and put it on the ground, to come to a short halt, my backpack landed on top of a bomb. And when the bomb went off, it took my right arm, right leg automatically. And when it took my um, right arm, right side, you know, they never found those pieces. They were actually disintegrated. And when I rolled over from hitting the left side of my face and I saw the aftermath, I realized that this was this is pretty serious. My left leg, if you can imagine um, your left ankle bone that pops out of your left ankle touching your thigh, mine was touching my thigh because my muscle was this uh, only thing holding on, muscle and tendon. And my left arm was blown out really bad at the wrist to the point where I um, I could still use my thumb and middle and index finger, but I couldn't use my pinky ring finger. They were mangled up. So I hit the ground, rolled over, and in my head, the only thing I kept seeing was Saving Private Ryan, uh, the movie, when the medic gets shot in the stomach and he cries out for his mom. And I thought, no way will that be me. I always leave from the front. I exude confidence. I never show fear. And the last thoughts of me was not going to be like the medic where the medic cried out in pain, yelled for his mom and said he doesn't want to die. And I thought, no way will my guy's last message be like, oh, my gosh, he begged for his life. And he all, and then he then he died. So, you know, I, I just couldn't see myself ever having that be my outcome. And instead, I radioed my LT. I told him that I needed his medic with mine. And, um, I, you know, he sent over his medic, Doc Voice. And we were able to 
you know, get the other guys worked on. And then they worked on me and got me on a helicopter. Now the helicopter, uh, the flight medic was doing his flight medic stuff. And, um, one of my guys was crying out in pain, which he had every right to, right? Like he, he was injured really bad. Uh, but I yelled at the flight medic, take his helmet off. For about the third time, he wouldn't listen to me. I took my arm out of the, the strap, my left arm, and I swung it over my head. And I told him to give my guys water and uh, tell them they're going to be okay. And he listened to me. And it was pretty awesome. He actually wrote in my book for me um, that he did that. He uh, wrote, like, a letter for me to my wife about how brave I was. But, you know, they got me to the, the hospital, and they had to medically sedate me. I kept trying to fight the nurses and tell them to quit touching me. I'm fine. Leave me alone as I was rolling down the hallway to surgery. And when they finally got me, um, about the fifth time they pushed me down, the, the nurse looked at me and was like, Sergeant Mills, I don't know how you're still liquor now. You need to go to sleep. So they put fluids through me to knock me out. And I looked at the nurse and I said, my little girl, am I ever going to see her again? Because at that time, I wasn't sure if I'd ever see my daughter, who was six months old, at home. And, um, you know, they went ahead and knocked me out. And then 14 hours of surgery ensued with nine doctors and seven nurses, where it's really impressive because they could have just they honestly loosened one tourniquet. And I would have... You know, I would have been done within two minutes, maybe three at the most, but they decided to keep working on me. And for 14 hours straight, they worked on me, where two nurses for nine of the hours pumped air in and out of my lungs. And I was given over 400 units of blood, um, which was the most ever given in Kandahar at the hospital at that time, to the point where they ran out of my type of blood. They had to do a mass like call anybody with um, universal and A positive blood get to the aid station. So I had to do like, special blood checks for six months to make sure I didn't, you know, get anything from the unfiltered, unchecked blood that they had to give me from the soldiers that were rushing over to donate to keep me alive. Um, and then, I don't know, then I, they flew me from there to Bagram two days later, and when they were doing their searches on me for, you know, clean-outs, they realized my skin on my hand had died. And that was the only limb I had left, so they cut that off, so it became a quadruple amputee on the 12th of April. And then two days after that, on the 14th, I woke up in the hospital in Launceville, Germany, and my brother-in-law was there with me because he's in the military, a great friend of mine. And um, he happened to be the one that had to tell me I had no arms and legs on my 25th birthday. So when I woke up, I asked for my soldiers first, and he told me. And then I asked him, am I paralyzed? And he said no. And I said, Josh, you know, I can't put my fingers and toes. You can tell me the truth. And he's like, I am telling you the truth. You don't, you're not paralyzed. You don't have them anymore. And once he told me that, I just went, oh. And um, kind of shut down and, you know, for three hours I talked to nobody. I didn't talk to my mom and dad. I didn't talk to my wife. I didn't talk to the nurses or doctors or my brother-in-law. I just ignored everyone because in my head I had a lot of questions. You know, am I a bad person? Does God hate me? What did I do wrong in life? You know, how can I be a husband and a father? And uh, honestly, the biggest question I honestly had, and I'm not embarrassed to tell anybody or whatever, but my biggest question was like, why didn't I just die? You know, how is this better than dying? And finally, Josh broke the silence and told me I had to call my wife and my parents, essentially. So I called them and when I called them and talked to them. It was, you know, real simple conversation of, hey, what's up? I'm fine. Love you. Bye. I didn't want to talk to them. I didn't want to deal with the situation at hand. I didn't want to have the conversation of, you know, what's next in life. And, you know, I just, I just, they, they wanted to hear my voice. I, I called them, had a short conversation and hung the phone up. I had someone hanging up for me. I guess I didn't have the hands to do that. But, but, you know. And that's kind of, um, you know, three days later, I arrived at Walter Reed on the 17th, and my wife came to see me, and she had to find a clipboard. They had to cut two inches off my right leg because I was bleeding out. My, my stitches ripped open. And then um, the next day on the 18th, the door, she should leave me, and she said, that's not how this works. 
And then uh, I was at Walter Reed, and we started my recovery process. And, it, you know, it wasn't immediate that day, but for 19 months, I had to fight back. That's some story. There was a time, Travis, where you said to Josh, I quit. But you didn't. Yeah. Why? Right. Why? Well, you know, um, fortunately for me, I was raised with um, my mom and dad always there for me, doing everything they could, the extra mile. I had a daughter who was looking up to me. Um, I had the ability to still be alive. And, you know, there's nothing I was going to do to change what happened. There was nothing I could do, like close my eyes, hoping, wishing, praying to make it go away. And, uh, you know, it's either let this beat me or, or me go ahead and step up to the plate and beat it. And um, luckily through my support system, my medical staff, and I think my, my morals and my upbringing um, of my, you know, never give up, never quit slogan I live by now, I was able to just say, yep, all right, this is awful. Let's just get after it. Let's make it happen. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, my daughter is the reason I think that I've done so well. And now I have a son as well. I want to break down the story Travis, because there's so much that I want to unpack in that. When 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 the explosion happened, you you said to the to the the medics, "Leave me, save my guys." Did you think it was over for you? Uh, I did. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I've seen guys die for what I thought was a lot less injury than than mine, and I didn't think I had much hope to make it. But I knew that my guys that were yelling out in pain weren't as close to the bomb. And that they had a chance of making it, and I just kept thinking, boy, if they're if they're hit, you know, too bad, artery or whatever, then they're never going to have the chance to make it. If the mech doesn't leave me a hopeless cause, so I said, hey, don't, don't worry about me. Go save my guys. And he ignored me, and I rated my LT. Actually, I reached up my microphone, my left hand that works still, and I rated my LT and told him, hey, I got guys. I need, you, I need you over here with my guys. And he went ahead and started working on my guys, and. um you know, they rushed over to work on them. And, and yeah, I, I, I long story short or, or answer simplified, yes, I didn't think I was going to make it. And I thought it would be a wasted cause. And the only thing I told myself was internally don't show any fear. There was, in the book you talked about, there was a 10-minute period, which, which must have been an eternity, between the explosion and the Black Hawk choppers coming in to get you. In, in that 10 minutes, because it seems like you were quite coherent through this whole thing, which is, which I'll get to in a second, which is amazing. What do you remember about that period, Travis, where you could hear the whir of the choppers of the Black Hawks coming in? What, what, do you remember what was actually going through your mind? Was it regret, doubt, anger, fear? What, what were you thinking about in that time when the chopper was about to get to you? Well, I kept saying not if it's, it's not if it's when, because I remember my CEO at the time, the officer, saying that, it's not if we get hit, it's when we get hit. And I was so pissed that he said that in a briefing before we deployed because you never ever say you're going to have somebody get hit. You always say it's not going to happen. Then when it does, you say it's a fluke and it should never happen and we're going to be better next time. You don't put that doubt in anybody's head. So I kept saying it's not if, it's when, and then kind of chuckling about it. And then I also was chewing on a fentanyl pop that they gave me, and my medic, Dan, was mad at me. He's like, why did you chew it? I said, I don't like suckers. And he got mad because I was supposed to suck on it, I guess. I said, I'll take another one, though. Don't taste too bad. It's kind of lemony. And, 
you know, I, the medic was freaking out. Doc's voice was kind of, not freaking out, but his worst trauma he'd seen. So he kept telling me, you're going to be fine. You're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. I kept, he was like a, like a CD on repeat because it was scratched. And it kept skipping to the same thing. I was like, <laughs> nope, we're done here. And I told him, I said, Doc, don't worry about it. Whatever happens, happens. Um, you're doing great. Just do your job. And I kind of told him, shut his mouth. But I'm not trying to sound like I'm some hardcore guy that, you know, in the face of all this was like brave and heroic. I just in my head thought, no way am I going to show fear. No way will I let them ever see me um, falter. And at the end of the day, whatever happens, it's not my choice. It's not my choice if I live. It's not my choice if I die. Um, so I'm just going to do my best to make sure that I can, you know, have a positive, lasting memory on my men. So if I do die, I tell the medic, hey, whatever happens, it's okay. It's not your fault. You're doing the best you can, and I definitely appreciate it. And you, even to the point, the fact you were conscious and can tell the story in itself is incredible, but you were, you were even thinking about your teammates to the point where you said you even looked across at one of your teammates and winked as if to say, "It's this is going to be fine. Have you always been, even even be, like in your life growing up with your family values and how you've been brought up, have you always been one to think about teammates and want to be of service to others? Is that is that an intrinsic part of Travis Mills? Well, yeah, I was always on the team. I was always football, baseball, basketball, um, you know, as, as the core sports I played. So you always do what you could for everybody um, on the team. And that's just kind of how, how you're supposed to do it. And at the end of the day, it's not up to me. You know, my job is always take care of soldiers. I'm the, the non-commissioned officer. I'm in charge. And um, when he was crying out in pain, he had every right. Like, look, he, he lost his right testicle. I'm not going to sit here and, and say he shouldn't have been crying out. Oops, sorry. Shouldn't have been crying out in pain. But the fact that he was freaking out, kind of his younger soldier, I figured I might as well wink and tell him, hey, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. During this time or soon after, you said there was a point where you had fire coursing through your body. It felt like everything was on fire, yet you didn't have any hands or legs. You could feel the fire. What? What? Just try to describe that to us. Um, when I said I had all that pain in my body, it's because of what they call phantom limb pain. And um, what it is is it's uh, your nerves are trying to find your – um, feet and your hands, so you get phantom limb pain and it hurts really bad, and it keeps stinging and keeps zapping, and every time a nerve can't find your foot, it tries to redirect. And I was in such bad phantom limb pain that it felt like my feet were on fire, my hands were getting, like, you know, uh, the nails pulled right off from them, it felt like there were spikes getting driven through my heels, and it was very unpleasant. And it did a bunch of different, um, I don't know, treatment that were cutting edge first of its kind and they had um a bunch of of cases wrote on it and they finally found something that they thought would work and it was a um ketamine coma so they tried that and it ended up working for me but for a while there they thought i was going to either die because of overdosing on pain medication or i was going to be in pain the rest of my life you said that during a lot of you during your rehab and your recovery you kept telling people that you would walk again, like you've got this. Don't worry about me. But then you said inside you were at war. What was going on inside your mind and your body during that period where on the outside you're telling people, I'm, I'm fine, I've got this, I'll walk again. But on the inside you're at war. What was that war like inside you? Yeah, 
you know, I don't talk about it much, and I'm not sure why, but when mental health came into my room to talk to me when I first got injured, I was sleeping, and my wife, when I woke up, said, hey, mental health came by, and I said, oh, don't, don't, I'm not talking to him, tell him to go home, and, or go away and never come back, and she's like, okay, Then the next day, they came back, and I was awake, but she told me they were there, so I pretended I got to sleep, and the third time they came in, I was eating a bowl of cereal, looked over, and my wife said, mental health's here, I'm like, oh, crap, and I fell back in my bed and pretended I got to sleep again, up from eating a bowl of, like, milk and cereal, and then she walked over and she said who she was. And then she asked me a question and I gave her my name, rank, and my social number, a serial number. And she said, what? And I gave it to her again. She goes, I don't understand. I said, that's what you tell the enemy if you ever get captured. So I said, so take that and leave or just leave. I'm not talking to you. Because in my eyes, they're the ones going to take away my guns. They're the ones going to, you know, make me some kind of um, mental, you know, mental um, patient. And I just wasn't going to have that or accept that for my life, so I wasn't going to talk to them. It's an unspoken thing about the military. Um, good, bad, or indifferent, maybe the wrong way to go about it, I wouldn't change it to this day. Because I was going to deal with this internally with myself, right? So I was the one smiling, having a good time. But at nighttime when the lights are off and it's all quiet and there's nothing going on, no noise, you have questions of, am I a bad person? Like, why did this happen? How can I be a husband and a father? How can I live a normal life? And... And in the very beginning, for five weeks, I didn't have a hand. So imagine being a baby that can talk and have adult, you know, uh, ideas and thoughts, but not being able to use the bathroom by yourself, feed yourself, do anything like that. I mean, it's 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 pretty depressing, to be honest with you, as well as um, it makes you just feel like a huge burden on everybody. So it, it definitely wasn't easy or something that was going to be easily figured out, but... Uh, I wasn't going to let anybody see my, my pain or my weakness because they're already there for me and they're already putting their lives on pause. My parents, my wife, you know, everybody's putting their life on pause. The doctors and nurses and everybody want me to get better and they're working for me. And it just wasn't something that I was going to let them know I was struggling with. And I never talked to anybody. I used to have to go to a, a caseworker once a, once a month or something like that or once a week. And I told the lady, I said, look, I, I'm only here because they make me come here for this appointment. I don't need your help. I don't want your help. I appreciate what you do, but I'm good. And then I'd sit there and she'd ask me a question and I'd, I'd answer. And she asked me a question about mental health stuff. And I'd say, again, I'm not talking to you about any of this. And finally about the third, the third time I had to go into that meeting, um, she's like, you really don't want to be here. I'm like, no, I don't. And I don't need your help. I appreciate it, but I'm not going to talk to you. So you might as well, you know, just, uh, let it go. And she finally released me from being there. When you finally saw your wife, Kelsey, after the explosion, what was the first thing you said? Oh, I'm pretty sure I broke down and apologized for having this happen. I didn't mean to screw up so bad and they shouldn't have got me. It's a lot of embarrassment. You know, it's funny. I was, I was more embarrassed. I mean, I was, I was angry and sad about what happened, but I was embarrassed because I was that six foot three, 250 pound guy that picked anything up and, you know, lifted anything and, you know, kind of your typical alpha male protector provider. Not that my wife's helpless; like she's definitely um, independent and strong on her own. But you know, I, I felt like I really had screwed everything up. I told her she should probably leave me and take everything we have um, because I'm not going to be any benefit to her. You know, what's really interesting about that, Travis, is that you you pushed Kelsey away and said, "Look, you should go and find a life somewhere else." But Kelsey said. Yeah, no, it doesn't work that way. And what's interesting is that you 
talk about not quitting, never giving in, yet you wanted her to give in on you. In a way, it's kind of flies in the face of the motto where you go, this is my motto, but you don't have to follow it. You don't have to follow it. You, you could walk away. Where was that moment where you came to grips with that to go, you know what, both you and Kelsey are chips in on this thing? Well, I mean, when she said she wasn't going to leave me, that was, that was impressive. Because um, I, I didn't give her like this angry, you need to leave me or push her away in that regard. I was just saying, you know, this isn't the life I would choose for you and, and Chloe. My daughter was six months old. That was a lot to handle as it is. And knowing that I need help eating every day and uh, I'm going to need help getting dressed every day. I'm going to be needing help with all this stuff. Um, it's not something I would want her to have to, to worry about. She should worry just on Chloe. And I did tell her financially, whatever we have is hers and whatever I get in the future, I would always take care of her because it's one thing for her to, you know, just not talk to me anymore and be gone. But it's another thing for me to say, I want to be a part of, you know, Chloe's life and your life. And I want to fund whatever I can for you for the rest of your life. But, you know, it, when you have the feeling of being a, a burden or in the way, you, you don't want to have that. You want to make sure people know that they can they can just go and, and um, live a happy life. And unfortunately, a lot of guys in the hospital, they don't give their, their spouse that option, but their spouse, you know, it's just too much for them to bear. So Kelsey is not only an amazing woman, uh, and mother and, and wife, but she's also you know, just uh, cut above the rest in, in all aspects, in my eyes, right? But I guess as her husband of 11 years, I'm supposed to say that, even though I truly mean it when I say it. <laughs> you know, with this this situation, this life-changing event, I think people people look at look at the person it happens to and they don't appreciate how much impact it has on those around them, whether it be... Kelsey, her family, kids. During that time, I understand that Kelsey kept a journal. What was the most moving thing that Kelsey wrote in her journal that really still moves you today or even motivates you to know that what she wrote about you, this situation? Because that's a journal is where you write down, you know, from the heart and you're just spilling things onto a page. What did she write that to this day still gets you? I know it was something along the lines that she doesn't, see, she doesn't see the guy that, you know, my injury she still sees me, right? There's something really beautiful about your story that I think just goes back to the – you must have – it must have been a position of humility for you, Travis, when you had to learn to walk again. But what was really beautiful is you had to learn to walk at the same time as your nine-year-old or nine-month-old daughter – was learning to walk. So you, you both had to walk together, which must have been a very special. What, what, was, what did it feel like for the humility of learning to walk again at the same time as a nine-month-old? Well, you know, it, it was amazing, honestly. Not all the parents can say that. And once you strip it all down, you realize that you have to get better. This is the only way forward. And then your daughter's mimicking you and wanting to walk around with you and holding your hand for balance as you're trying to balance yourself and walk around, um, safely doing it, or else I would have never done it. Uh, you know, it's, it's pretty awesome. So for me, um, it's a cool story to tell my daughter who's eight years old now. She always tells people, I taught my dad how to walk without me. He probably wouldn't be able to do it. So, I mean, that's, that's a fun story, you know, and, um, you don't really think about it at the time. You just kind of do what you have to do to get better and, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, looking back now, I guess that that's, that's pretty, pretty crazy to think about. There was a moment when a guy called Todd walked into your room during rehab 
and he talked to you and he changed your mindset about the future and your injuries. Tell me, tell me about that conversation with Todd. And as importantly, why, why did you believe what he said? Yeah, so Todd Nussie walked into my room and uh, I think the first thing out of his mouth was, hey man, welcome to the club. And I'm pretty sure I fired back with, I don't want to be in your club. And he let me know that uh, kind of late now because he's a quadruple amputee. He was the second ever quadruple amputee. I'm unfortunately the fourth. And he let me know that no matter what I'm thinking, whatever doubts I have and feelings I have, um, I'm going to be fine. I'm in the best place for me. Um, he learned how to walk, drive, feed himself. Everything that I wanted to be able to do again, he already had done. And he saw my story, and he's from Missouri, and he flew in from his house just to let me know, hey, man, life goes on. You're going to be fine. And, you know, automatically right there, you, you find out, wow, someone's just like me. It's been through the same thing, and they're able to keep pushing forward. And then the second thing you think is, well, they're a Marine. Obviously, Marines are really dumb. And this must be easy. So <laughs> the boost of confidence because you're going to, you know, he hates that joke, by the way, but he doesn't really get it. I have to explain what it means to him. They always say Marines eat crayons. So I just sent him Crayola. He loves me again. Thanks so much for my crayons because they, they love it. Just can I just ask you something on that? A guest on our show, a, a, a guest on our show not long ago was Jocko Willink and you were on the Jocko show. And Jocko's show is pretty deep. It's pretty dark at times. It's pretty heavy. Yet he said going into that show that we've got Travis Mills on and you're not. You're the opposite. You're the joker. Your, your humorous approach to life with what you've been through, where you are, the situation you've been through, your injuries, the fact that you take the piss out of yourself, the fact that you laugh at it, does that annoy people? Like, do you do you get in situations where when you brush things off with a joke, with the way that you naturally approach life, do you find that sort of annoys a lot of people? You know, it doesn't. Actually, I think it helps them uh, humanize me because when they see me at first, they're like, oh, my gosh, look at this guy. Um, what do I say? How do I approach this conversation? And then they realize, wow, he's just like everybody else. And... I've found that people relate better to me that way than staring at me and thinking, ooh, how do I say hello? Or what am I going to say that's going to offend this guy? So, you know, when I was, before I was injured, I always joked around, people found me annoying. So I guess being handicapped is a free pass. Nowadays, you have got a very impressive business record going with marinas and, and investments into property, the foundation. Like, you really are doing some wonderful things in the business world. When you walk into a, a boardroom or walk into a corporate situation and now you flip from being military guy into business guy, what's what's the immediate reaction? What's the immediate perception that you you can see in people's eyes when you walk in to do a business deal? Well, I mean, now, now I get a little more respect than I used to. I used to go into a meeting and people would think like, oh, well, this is nice. We get to hang out with Travis Mills and and it's real sweet that he's trying so hard, you know. But now when I walk in, people, after they start talking with me, they realize, like, oh, wow, he jokes around a lot, but he's actually, he knows his numbers and he understands what he's doing. Um, it's just like normal conversation. And uh, and I'll be honest, I, I use my name and I throw my name around a lot so that I can, you know, I can get businesses or I can uh, be a part of a business. And it works out really well for me. But I also tell people, you know, I live in one of the greatest nations in the, in the world because, I have the ability to have arms and legs, drive, feed myself, walk, 
And I started by flipping houses like everybody else. Like every success story you hear, they started doing something. And the way I, I was able to make, you know, my marina happen or my uh, other businesses that I'm uh, going into right now, I, I have a, a restaurant and a bar that I think I'm starting. Um, was because I flipped houses. I hustled real hard, and I just kept the American dream, as they call it. I'm sure they have, you know, an Australian dream, just like I was in Canada, and, and they have a Canadian, the Canadian dream. So, you know, you just you just gotta push hard and, and know that, you know, there's opportunity out there. You just gotta take it. With today's modern prosthetics, can you do most things, Travis? I mean, the, the technology and the advancements continue to grow. Can you do most things? And, and from opening a beer to cleaning your teeth to driving, are there, are there most most are there things you cannot do, or can you do pretty much everything you want to do? You know, I can do everything I want to do. The truth is, I have about three minutes a day I don't truly enjoy. I need help put my legs on, um, <laughs> you know, and that's that's kind of the worst part of my day. If you will, it's not even bad. But my wife or my father-in-law or my dad or my brother, there's a select amount of people that I allow. Um, that I allow to help me with my legs. But after that three minutes, get my legs on and my arm on. Yeah, I can put my arm on myself, but my legs on, I can walk. Like right now, I'm literally driving, um, as I'm talking to you on Bluetooth, with my left prosthetic, or my right prosthetic leg. Which I think, that's pretty incredible because I'm a above-knee amputa- uh, amputation. I have a little remote lock my leg, 25-degree angle, Bluetooth, and I'm driving my 1500 Sierra truck down the road, right? Um... I take my daughter, like, I'm, I'm getting home just in time to take my daughter gymnastics at 4 o'clock tonight. And I just had a meeting where I shot a video for donations for my foundation. So, yeah, I, just, I mean, there's, there's not a lot that limits me because of the nation and the technology. And a lot of this technology, some of it's actually from Australia. My legs, I'm pretty sure um, they partnered with uh, Sweden to make my legs. Australia and Sweden made them. And you guys are cutting edge on the Austrian integration too, whether you know what that is or is or you don't. But on the the Austrian integration, which is a big thing for amputees, you guys, I think you guys are the cutting edge of it. If we go back to the rehab and you learning to adapt to your new situation, when you when you were going through rehab, you decided to run a five k run, and you got to I don't know two two and a half k's into a five k run, and you hit a tunnel and you wanted to stop, and it got really hard. But then in your mind, something changed. Take, take us to that moment and why, why suddenly things changed in that race. Yeah, I mean, my legs were – my right leg was rubbing completely raw. Where I was like, um, you get a blister on your, your heel from new shoes. I was getting that on my right side, on the inside. And my back was killing me, and I was a little bit overweight, to be honest with you. But uh, – uh, but then I came out of the tunnel, and there was 343 firemen with 343 banners on their necks. And they were representing the first responders that lost their lives in 9-11. And, um, they had the, the, and I was like, wow, those brave men and women can ultimately perish in 9-11. I can perish this, this 5K. And in truth, you know, when I, was, when I was doing it and I wanted to sit down and give up uh, and quit, I thought, come on, let's just buckle down and get it done. Just to prove to myself that I can do it. And, and I was able to finish. I was bleeding with, from rubbing my blisters completely raw. Like, that was awful. But, you know, hey, life goes on, and, and I was able to finish the 5K. And, um, you know, it was empowering for me, but also just knowing that those 
men and women on 9-11, you know, when the t- Twin Towers were attacked, ultimately perished because they were trying to save lives and help people. And that was a real big driving force of like, come on, just a little bit of a blister, a little bit of pain isn't going to kill you. It's funny how you frame that because I've heard you say that in an important part of your own therapy was being of service to others. So helping others was really important to help you get through your own therapy. And that, that seems like such a profound thing that we could all relate to no matter our circumstances is to, it's almost, is it almost distracting yourself from your own situation by being of service to others, Travis? Yeah, I mean, when Todd came and visited me, it was a huge boost to my morale. And then I found out that a lot of people have the same questions I have, right? Why did this happen? Am I a bad person? How did I deserve this? And I became the very first person that they all met at Walter Reed that wasn't a nurse or a doctor. And it wasn't just for them, it's for their family members too. So out of the 19 months I was there, I met like 120 families of people that were injured. And I was the first like welcome party, if you will. And I found that helping them made me feel good, you know, sure, but it made them be able to relax and calm down and know that, hey, life goes on. And since there's only five quadruple amputees, there wasn't a lot of guys that were as injured um, as myself or Todd or my buddy Taylor, who was the fifth and final. And in truth, I think that was the best therapy for me. And now I go around and I get to talk about my injuries and how I got through it. And I think that's therapeutic for me as well. So, you know, I, I mentioned earlier how I didn't talk to mental health. and I, I thought of them as kind of the enemy. Um, I think I have my own counseling sessions that I do. And that's why the foundation was so important to me, because it brings the families in these situations back together to reunite. And then they can bounce ideas and they can talk about their stories and they can have a really good conversation where it's out of the clinical setting or the, you know, person with a notepad writing down what they say and taking comments down about what they um, have discussed. So, so yeah, helping people has helped me for sure. And I was fortunate at Walter Reed where I would take not just myself, but eventually I had like a welcoming party. And whether you were walking, wheeling, or, you know, in between walking with a crutch and things like that, we had like nine people one time go room to room and meet people, and it was awesome. It's It hasn't been an easy road by any stretch for you, and you said that there was a period where you couldn't look at yourself in the mirror, and we've already talked about you going through these times where you were outside, you were putting on a brave, a brave facade, but inside you're at war. And you said you couldn't look at yourself in the mirror. What what was the turning point where you could actually embrace all this and look at yourself in the mirror and have that true, honest conversation? I'll be honest. It took about six months. I mean, I might have been like had an arm, I might have had an arm to five weeks walking within two months. Uh, but it took about six months before I could look in the mirror and really accept what I saw. Um. You know, it's hard. I used to have 22-inch biceps, and I, I, you know, curls for the girls for days. But then you show up and you have nothing. You have no hands. You have no bicep on one side. The other one that's, you know, you can't really work it out that much. Um, And the problem is the mirror was right on the back of the door. So when you had to use the bathroom, you sit in the toilet, and there's a mirror right there. You're like, well, why don't I look at that anyway? But, uh, but yeah, I mean, in, in, in all honesty, it took me a while to be able to, like, accept this is me. And still to this day, I mean, I, I don't mind looking in the mirror now, but I'm like, man, geez, what happened? Cause I, I eat too much Philly cheesesteaks, to be honest with you. I got to lose some weight starting on Monday, maybe. But I, uh, it, you know, it's just, I remember I got out of the military. And I, this is in my book. My book's been out. Um, 
don't think it's in my book, but I got in the military and I retired out in uh, October of 2013. And I went to my in-laws house in Texas where they were living at the time. And I was staying there, right? They had it all set up. They had the bedroom set up for me. And I had a picture that was up they put on the wall for me. It was the last picture taking me with arms and legs. I have a orange ball cap on. I got my rifle. I'm standing up right before a patrol. And it was taken the day before I got blown up. And I remember looking at a picture and breaking down and saying, like, who the hell am I now? Who's, who's Sergeant Mills? I'm nobody. I'm out in the military, right? So I'm out in the military. I lost my brotherhood. Um, I'm not at the hospital where I was highly sought out as a, a mentor and motivator and someone to look up to and believe in. And now I'm out of the military, so who am I? What am I going to do? And you know what? It started dawning on me in that moment, the way the world was crushing down about, like, what am I going to do with life? You know, because at the time, I, I was, like, 28 years old, uh, maybe only 26. Yeah, 26 years old. And you think about that, in the world now, people live, like, 80 years old, 70 years old. Um, and I'm like, man, i got, like, 50 years left. So what am I going to do? I'm not just going to sit on the couch. Like, people would absolutely accept if I just said, I'm going to sit on the couch and do nothing. I'm going to watch TV. I'm going to maybe go here, maybe go there, but I'm going to live a life of ease. And um, that's just not who I am. So I started working out in the gym. I started doing some speaking, and I realized that, you know, this is my purpose, my calling, and uh, I really enjoy business. So, I mean, I'm not a multi-millionaire. I'm not even a, a millionaire, but, boy, one day I'll be a multi-billionaire, guys. And I'm going to be on my yacht hanging out with you guys down there in Australia, and we're going to have a great time debating <laughs> on the toilets. I'm there. You got it. It's it's really interesting, Travis. Uh, this is just a little off-ramp, but we, over the last couple of seasons, identity and alter ego and so on has been a, a really interesting thread that's run through the show. And just hearing you talk about that, 26 years old, looking at that picture with your old identity and then having to find a new identity and create that something that you're comfortable with for the next 50 years. There seems to have been a real pivotal point for you when you looked in the mirror is to say, maybe that was a struggle as I, I have lost my identity. Where am I? And what is my new identity? And you were afraid to look in the mirror to face that identity. That That's a really profound piece for us all to think about, I reckon. Oh, absolutely. And you know, my thing is, I have my life mapped out. 20 years in the military. I was going to come back from my third deployment. I was going to go recruiter for three years. I had a year and a half left of college. I was going to cross over and get my degree and become an officer. Finish out 20, 22 years in the military as a major. High school teacher, football coach. Good life, right? Pension, live a good life, whatever. Then I get blown up. Everything changes. Everything shifts. At the hospital, I was uh, the person people looked up to. They talked to. They, they asked questions about how to walk this way or how to... Um, do this task or whatever. And then I get out and I go to a big city of Dallas area, like Frisco in Dallas, Texas, where, you know, millions of people live and nobody knows me. I've built no reputation for myself. And I don't want to be seen as the guy with no arms, no legs in a charity case as much as I want to be, you know, back in society, back with um, people as, you know, a peer. And you lose your identity, you lose your, your self-worth in a way. And like I said, I mean, like I, I'm not going to lie. I have a pension, right? I'm retired from the military. I have a pension. And I, I could sit around and do probably nothing and, and be able to make ends meet and be fine. But that's not the kind of person I am. So, you know, 
I tell people life's all peaks and valleys. Um, I started out playing sports in high school. I was like top of the top of the food chain. And then I went to college and I was like on the sidelines. So I was in a valley. And then I joined the military where I stayed in the valley as a private, worked myself up to staff sergeant. You know, it was in a peak and then I got injured. So another valley, worked myself back up in the hospital. And then I got out and I was in a horrible valley. But now, I mean, I'm a father of two wonderful children. My wife and I are 11 years going strong. Uh, the nonprofit's doing very well. It's grown to be one of the top 25 um, veteran service organizations, I guess, in the nation, from what I'm told. And I own three businesses. So it's, got, it's all about, like you said, identity or building yourself, refining yourself, and accepting the situation. Instead of running from my situation, I accept who I am. I accept that I have my arms and legs gone. And the worst part is, um, every now and then when I sit and dwell on what happened, I sit and think like, man, it's the rest of my life. I have no hands the rest of my life. Why did this happen? But then you quickly realize, well, you know what? My uh, good friends are no longer here. They don't have their spouses. They don't have the ability to watch their children go. And there's no way that I should ever feel down or uneasy about it because I have the ability to still be here. When they have unfortunately died overseas, and don't have the, um, you know, the, the ability to be around. I know I said ability twice, I'm trying to repeat myself, but, you know, you think about my buddy's wife and his daughter who would give anything for him in my situation, or his mother who would give anything for one more conversation. And that's, that's a real impactful conversation to have with them of like, wow, you know what, this might suck, but how lucky am I to still be here? I'm actually working on another speech, um, another presentation I'm going to give, and I'm going to base it off from being um, unfortunately fortunate, right, and find the silver lining in everything because no matter what happens, you can always find the life lesson in there and always make things better for yourself. Uh, Robbo, sign for the studio wall. Unfortunately, fortunate. <laughs> Lola, get onto it. I'm sorry, I can't do that right now. <laughs> People always ask me if I'd ever go back in time and not get blown up with all the good that I'm doing, and I'm like, oh, absolutely, I would. Selfishly, as as I can say it, and as, as much and as loud as I can say it, I would never go back in time and have this happen to me again, no matter how much good I'm doing. Because my daughter, I'd love to be able to teach her how to play soccer. I'd love to throw my kid in the air and catch him. And that's just not the life I live in. So instead of living in the past, I just reminisce it, don't dwell, and keep pushing forward. Is there anything that you don't think you would have done or we would have learned if it hadn't have happened? Oh, well, absolutely. But, I mean, you know, that's, that's just how life goes. I, I wouldn't probably have a speaker's company. I wouldn't have a marina our lodge, I wouldn't have a foundation. Um, my wife and I, we probably would have a couple more kids maybe, or at least they'd be closer in age. You know, you can play the what if game all day long, but you know, the whenever you got your life mapped out, you think you know what you're doing curveball, right? So, um, you know, for me, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I've done or I, I do now that I would never have done. You know, uh, I'm actually thinking about like doing a, um, a political campaign and running for office. Uh, not, not yet. Like my kids get a little bit older, you know, and like they want me to run for like U.S. Congress and U.S. Senate. Like I've had phone calls with high up people in, in uh, political parties that want me to run. And that probably wouldn't be my, no one would have reached out for me to do that if I wouldn't have the, you know, uh, the injury plus the, uh, the public appearance that I have now. So definitely there's been things that have happened, but. I think it's all, all coming from instead of sitting on the couch and, and uh, watching TV and eating Cheetos all day, I, I get out there and get after the best I can. President Mills has a nice ring to it, Travis. You know, it does. It does. 
But I'm thinking about starting my own political party right in the middle wow. of everything. That way we can all get along and be friends. On the Never Quit podcast, David Rutt Rutherford and Marcus Luttrell ask you at the head of the show, if you could have a drink with somebody, a person dead or alive, you could have a drink with them, who would you choose? And you said Jesse James. Is there, talk about alter ego and identity, is there a little Jesse James in Travis Mills? I mean, I don't want to rob banks or anything like that because I think that's probably not good. But if I was taken from a big bad, you know, I'm like a Robin Hood fan. Like Kevin Costner is the greatest Robin Hood ever made. No one's going to convince me any different. But, um, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. I want to help everybody out. Um, if I wasn't doing my foundation for the veterans, I'd probably do something with, with children. I think that um, no children should be, like, hungry or not have a coat. And it's just ridiculous that we have that this, this day and age when stores are just jam-packed full of food and clothing that kids go without, you know? So I guess, yeah, in a charitable way, Jesse James kind of been a, a role model, if you will. When they, when they paint him that way, they don't paint him as like a gunslinger that murdered people outright and took their money. They say that he, you know, was defending this family farm and the railroad came in and killed his parents. And, and then he started stealing money from the railroad alone and giving it back to the, the poor farmers after the civil war. So, I guess it's, I guess it's like that Ivan the Terrible. You know, he got the name from the people. That's how they remembered him. It wasn't Ivan the Great. It was Ivan the Terrible. So it's how history remembers you. Do you know fear today? Is there anything you fear? I mean, I'm, I'm not a fan of like snakes or spiders. Uh, I don't fear death, but I'm not like looking for it by any means. I want to make sure I'm always a good father and a good husband. I want to make sure that my kids can come come to me with any problem they have. And instead of like saying. I can't tell dad he'd be so mad. I want them to be able to be like, well, this is awful. I better tell my dad. I better let him know what's going on so we can fix this together. Um, but, you know, just normal fears. I don't have, like, any any wild, crazy fear of anything, I guess. I think snakes is pretty pretty scary, though. Yeah, you guys are a big fan of snakes? We just had one in the backyard. Yeah. Nope. A, red, a, uh, a red belly black in the uh, in the backyard. And, yeah, you don't want to screw with those, Travis. Just you probably never heard of one. But, yeah. So we get them all the time. That's actually a good thing. That keeps the browns away. Yes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> not such a good thing when you've got kids running around, but, hey. Yeah, no, I'm not a fan of those. Your son, Dax, when you, when you look in the mirror today now, Travis, and you've created this identity – we had a, a guy on the show called Michael Gervais, the sports performance coach, the mental performance coach for the Seattle Seahawks in the NFL. And he had a saying that said, game recognizes game. And the game you set up is recognized by others in their game. What do you want, what, what reflection do you want shown in Dax as a man, as he grows up? What's the game you want to be recognized by Dax? Oh, I mean, I want him to be, you know, he has to know that when you shake, shake, shake a man's hand, you stand up, right, shake your hand, look him in the eye. He has to know, open the doors for, for the, the ladies. He, uh, those are like the moral and good that you teach him. But I also want to know that, you know, whatever he wants to do, I'm proud of him. I'll help him do anything he wants. And um, whether he runs a business I create or he starts his own deal or whatever, I, I'm, I'm good with it. But, you know, it's it's those life lessons that, you get taught about show up early, 15 minutes early is on time. Um, that, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to make sure that, think, I think today in the society, people don't have those, 
that same outlook or that same uh, moral fiber that, that, you know, was instilled in me. And I think that we've gotten away from that as, as a society. So the biggest thing I want is a respectable, you know, young man that I get is going to screw up. I understand probably going to drink underage and go out and party and stuff like that. Like I did, I don't, I'm not looking for an angel, but the thing I want from him is that, um, respectable can talk to adults, look people in the eye and, you know, just, just, uh, be that role model, you know, for maybe his sports team or his class in high school and uh, things like that. I'm not sure if I'm answering this right, guys. I feel like I'm babbling. You got to help me. What should I have said? I think you did good. I think you did very well. Something I was thinking this morning, somebody, somebody built that IED. Somebody, somebody placed that right where you put your backpack in order to hurt if not intentionally kill another human being. If you could meet that person face-to-face, Travis, man or woman, and you could meet them face-to-face knowing they built that thing to hurt or kill another human being, if you could meet them face-to-face, what would you say to them or what would you want to ask them? Oh, I, uh, so, uh, you know, okay, so that's a rough question because, like, I'm not, I know the guy's not around anymore. Like, I know for a fact. I did meet the guy. Um, unfortunately, we had him in custody, and then he got let go because we didn't take pictures of him and all the bombs. But then my sister unit found him, and he's no longer walking among us, if you will. But you know what? They have their ideals, and we have ours. We believe one thing, they believe another. And it is what it is. I, I don't think I'm ever going to forgive anybody. I'm not, I'm not that great of a human being. I know, like, the movie Unbroken, the, the story of Louis, Louis Zamperini, who was a prisoner of war. There's a horrible um, commandant or whatever of the prison camp, and he tortured him and beat him and all these horrible things, and he found a way to forgive him. He tried to go to, back to Japan and tell him, hey, we're all good, because the guy was, like, a successful, like, uh, insurance agent after the war. That's, that'll never be me. I will always have that, uh, you know, I don't want to call it hatred, but that hatred and um, for the enemy. And uh, it just kind of is what it is. I don't think about it. I don't dwell on it. I don't, you know, lose sleep over it. But but the fact that, you know, they were trying to kill me as much as I was trying to kill them, um, just kind of is what it is. Travis, there is a rumor that's floating around. So back in the teams, you were known as Big Travis Big Mills. You said you were 200-odd pounds, six foot three. I mean, you're a big unit. But you were known to walk around the barracks singing girl band songs like Britney Spears. Yeah, sure. Yeah. What is going on with that? Well, I like the music. You, you, got, you know, like Kesha and Britney Spears and stuff like that. I'm not sure what's wrong with your, your hearing. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, it didn't matter. Whatever was on the radio, I, I mean, I, I sing country too. They never put that in there, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I still do to this day. Matter of fact, I was just showing my daughter because she likes she likes like all those songs and whatever, like girl songs. I was just trying to show her Paramore, which is like a rock band for uh, women uh, lead singer, woman lead singer, and all that stuff. But yeah, I would sing stuff. And the beauty is, I outranked all of them, so they couldn't tell me anything. That's why I used to go up and sing. All the eight second songs after patrols. <laughs> did they like it? No, not at first. Do they want me to be quiet? Absolutely. Could they say something to me? Not at all. 
And that's why I did it, because I knew that I, they couldn't do anything about it. It's probably pretty bad to say, right? <laughs> so we were, we were talking to uh, to Leif from the from Jocko the Jocko show. And he was telling us a story about uh, about sending a remote control tank into a combat situation, and they were playing they were playing Phil Collins. So, are you telling us that you would be playing like TikTok or something like that? Is that right? Oh my gosh, would I be playing TikTok? You know, I'd be playing TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> If they want to be pumped up, I don't tell you. Kesha, Kesha just does it for me. She just gets it. Travis, I'm very mindful of your time. Do we have 90 seconds more of your time? Yeah. Is that, is that a bad thing? No. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Robbo's Nifty 90. Okay, Lola, start the clock. Travis, what was the last TV show you watched? That's how many shows. What's something that really annoys you? Styrofoam being rubbed together. Makes me go crazy. What's your favorite swear word? I don't swear, obviously, but if I did, it'd probably be, unfortunately, the F word. Favorite outdoor activity? Drinking. <laughs> nice. Uh, if your house was burning down and your family was safe uh, and your pets and et cetera, what, with, what three things would you take with you? Uh, my wheelchair. Hopefully I get that out because that makes life a lot easier. Um, probably my guns. All of them. I'm not going to pick just one. <laughs> and Nice. I guess the remote to the TV doesn't matter because you can't lose it if the TV's gone. So, the, the dogs, if the, if the dogs don't count, then the dogs. Mate, finish this sentence for me. I never get tired of. My uh, my wife. Good answer. Because she might listen. Yeah, I never get tired of Philly cheesesteaks. What's something that's best done slowly? Drinking scotch whiskey. Okay, uh, what's three things that your team would say about you? If they had the chance, ah, uh, I'm good looking, great dancer, wonderful singing voice, and love Kesha. Well, yeah, they know that, absolutely. <laughs> so, okay, so here's your big chance, mate. What, what's out? What out of all of the Kesha tunes? Give us your favorite. Ah, uh, you know that one, Pitbull, Timber. That's pretty good. Nice. Travis, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I know it took us a long time, a couple of years to get into your calendar because you are a busy guy. You've got a lot going on with the foundation, with you, your speaking, your investments, your property, the whole thing, and the family. Thank you so much, mate. People who want to know more about you, which they will, the book, the foundation, where's the hub for you, mate? Where do you send people to get more Travis Mills? TravisMillsFoundation.org or TravisMills.org for all your Travis Mills needs. <laughs> <laughs> I could turn that into an ad for you, mate. There's some cool merch and there are the book is there and the foundation stuff you're doing, congrats on all that, mate. It really is fantastic. I think, honestly, your story is incredible, but the work, the how you are embracing it today and continuing to help other people is really, uh, it's really something. And, mate, we so appreciate you taking time out to come on the show and, uh, and share. Thank you. Hey, I hope you guys have a great day, you champions. Also, I'm only successful with the foundation and the work I do because wonderful people out there, such as yourself, support me and keep pushing my mission forward with me. So I thank you for your time 
and uh, hope you guys have a wonderful Super Duper kind of day. Take your marks. Hi, I'm athlete Dina Castor, and I've run a lot of marathons in my time, but I've never been so happy to see the finish line as with Gary and Robbo on the Mojo Radio Show. That's all well and good. In fact, I, I really enjoy that story, and I, I can't believe what the guy's been through. But answer me this. I mean, if you look at it another way, you could just so you could just say that's a medical recovery. The guy was injured. People recover from car accidents and all that stuff every day. What do I look for if I was going to turn that lesson into my real life? What do I look for in a boss, a potential partner, someone I'm thinking doing business with? What can I look for to know that they have resilience? Just look at them in any given day and say, what was something difficult that others turned away from that they did or stepped into? Hard conversation, stepping into a cold shower, exercising at 10 o'clock at night when they were tired, walking past the buffet at the airport and going actually having salad rather than putting their face in a trough. I mean, there are, there's a myriad of different ways, and this is important for us to teach our children, is that people like Travis Mills have got no arms and no legs, yet what he does in a physical sense, what he does in a spiritual sense, what he does for community, uh, inspiring others, his charity, leading a life with his family. I mean, he's taking on every single day. He wakes up and he's got to face life with no arms and no legs. What do we take with that? What's all the hard stuff that we we give into? We give into, as Stephen Pressfield talked about in The War of Art, we give into the resistance, all the reasons we shouldn't. And so we don't do stuff. And when we make crap excuses to why we didn't do it, and this is a guy who doesn't make excuses and gets after it. So I think it's really easy to look at people. It's the people who are doing things that they don't want to do, but do it anyway. Mm. I personally don't want to know if my boss is having a cold shower. (laughs) The Mojo Radio Show. So another sad loss of recent times was an interviewer that I think we all paid huge respect to. He was the host of Inside the Actor's Studio. Uh. His name was James Lipton. And he, the Inside the Actor's Studio, which you can still find online, was about interviewing the greatest living actors, directors, and producers in front of a studio audience, which was all first, second, and third year actors and directors and producers who aspired to recreate in some way the career of whoever James was interviewing. And this is a bit of a stretch, but something I, a question that we have asked people on the show that he was famous for, his last question was, If heaven exists, what would you want God to say to you at the pearly gates? And I thought that was an absolute, I've ever seen, I used to wait for that question and and some of the answers he got. And one of my favorite ones, when James Lipton asked Robin, Robin Williams, what would he want God to say at the pearly gates? Robin Williams said, They're seating near the front. (laughs) (laughs) The concert begins at five. It'll be Mozart. Elvis, and one of your choosing. Or, or just a nice, if heaven exists, to know that there's laughter. That would be a great thing. Oh, yeah. Just to hear God goes, two Jews walk into a bar. 
God, I love Robin Williams. It's really interesting that you talk about heaven, though, because we got the most bizarre message on the answering machine the other day. Check this out. Uh, yeah, hi. This is Heaven calling. Please hold for a call from Dave from the Dead Rock Stars division. Yeah, g'day. Look, it's uh, Dave here, boys. I'm the chief bouncer in the Dead Rock Stars division here at the Pearly Gates. Look, the boss has asked me to give you guys a quick call because some bloke turned up here the other day and was telling everyone about your show. We listen every week. But we've got a bit of a problem here. Hendrix and Freddie have been arguing with Bond, Scott and Janis Joplin about who's got the best playouts on for your show. Hendrix and Mercury reckon it's Radio Gaga because you blokes talk too much. Yeah, it's kind of true. And Bond and Joplin reckon it's Long Way to the Top, the Chico Roll version, of course. Uh, look, personally, I really don't care, but they're driving us bonkers up here. Can you just play Stairway to Heaven? Hopefully by the time everyone stops playing their guitar, they'll have forgotten about this crap and just shut the f*** up. Look, thanks, fellas. Oh, and by the way, uh, the boss says to say, uh, see you both soon. <laughs> oh, hang on. Hey, Morrison, you can't smoke that shit in here. Oh, I know, but it's in dropping peanut butter and banana sandwich all over the place. Get a plate or something, you fat... Now, it sounds to me like the Mojo Radio Show is on high rotation at the Pearly Gates, which was kind of nice to know. Um, but it surprises me that rock star legends like these guys would be calling out for Stairway to Heaven. It's a bit of a cliche. Two things. First thing, and this is, not, this is probably the obvious thing, did you know there is a cowbell in Stairway to Heaven? <clears throat> no. I did not. John Bonham, and you can check this online, John Bonham used the cowbell at the back end of Stairway to Heaven. Like in the crescendo? Yeah. The, the, the very- Oh, I'm going to get all scientific this week, Bert Whistle. <coughs> You're putting yourself out there. I've pulled you up on this once before. <laughs> no, no. If you go through the list, go online. Yeah. It shows the 50 great cowbell songs okay. of all time. Yeah. It's in the list. Please don't tell me you're solely relying on a list on Google. However, if you go in there, you will see a number of references to Jimmy Page and Robert Plant making reference to John Bonham playing Cowbell. Okay. I'm I'm not saying no. I'm just saying I've heard that song lots of times and I don't remember hearing a Cowbell. We'll answer the question next week, though. One of the things that I do know about the song Stairway to Heaven that relates to our show in terms of all the things that we talk about is Stairway to Heaven is one of the very few songs, in fact, probably the only one that comes to mind to me at the moment, that breaks the basic cardinal rule of speeding up. One of of the uh, basic rules of music is that you never speed up, you never slow down. And in the first 90 seconds of Stairway, well, maybe a bit more, maybe about two minutes, it starts to speed up and it does that the whole way through. Uh, and that's something that Jimmy Page has talked about a lot. It's something that he actually sat down to do when he wrote that song. When I hear Stairway to Heaven, it always reminds me of Wayne's World. Remember this? <laughs> no stairway. Deny. The thing that I always remember Stairway to Heaven, that clip picking up the strat and then being out in the footpath with Garth, talks to Wayne about his dreams of having the strap. Stop torturing yourself, man. You'll never afford it. Live in the now. 
it. It will be mine. Oh, yes. It will be mine. And the thing is, you know, people talk themselves out of their dreams. We've got a guy coming up in the show in a couple of weeks' time called Steve Sims. And he is a guy who makes dreams happen for people. And we're going to talk about this, but why why do we not pursue our own dreams that we believe in? Why do we not dream big enough? And worst case, why do we let other people talk us out just like Garth talked, tried to talk Wayne out of having that strat? And people say, oh, it's never going to happen, man. Live in the real world. We talk ourselves out of it. And I think the lesson for me especially as parents who try to talk their kids out of their dreams. And for me, we need to allow our kids to have our dreams and encourage their dreams. And regardless of whether we believe in them or not, um, it's their dreams. You know, kids, our friends, staff at, at, at work. And what's curious about this, if you tie it back to the actual song, the lyrics, I mean, they're pretty, I mean, some of them are pretty wild lyrics that are in there, but at the beginning of the song, the actual lyric is about a woman who accumulates money only to find out the hard way that her life has no meaning and it will not get her to heaven. And if you go back to episode 186 of the Mojo Radio Show, the fabulous Brody Ware who wrote the top five regrets of the dying, the number one regret of the dying was that people were not true to their own dreams and we lived by everybody else's expectations. And Bronnie said the number one regret was, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. So I think there is a lot wrapped up in this message from North of the Mojo Radio Show. And although it is probably one of the most played rock and roll songs on rock radio around the world uh, I think we should finish a bit of Stairway we're out there's a lady who's sure all it glitters is gold and she's buying a stairway to heaven when she gets there she knows if the stores are all closed with a word she can get what she came
to the Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirdwhistle.com. And to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.